Emma mentioned to me yesterday that there was some talk, some news articles about a vaccine potentially being available as early as September. April 29th. I'm on my own today as Tanya's taking a break from some of these uh, some of these episodes. Um, and I know that the episode probably isn't going to be as good without her here. And so I understand if you want to turn this off right now. But if you want to hang around, um, and the reason I want to keep doing this, by the way, is because this is helpful for me to, first of all, process some of the things that are going on related to COVID-19 as it's, as, as I've been, as I've mentioned before, I think it's that these are, these are ideas that float around in my head. And I find if I don't get them out and talk about them in some way and process them, they keep me up at night. And, um, and it's stuff that I want to get out of my head in some form. And secondly, I think it's something that I will want to look back on. These are, these are the trajectory and, and all the, things that happen here and what I'm thinking and feeling, I'm going to want to look back on this. And so this is my way of logging the events of, uh, of these, of this very, very strange time, uh, for myself to go back and look at and to listen to, I guess, in the future. So I think there's four things I want to talk about, um, tonight. The first is that it, that yesterday, we missed this yesterday, but, um, yesterday was the national day of mourning and that's observed every 28th of April, and it commemorates workers who've been killed, injured, or who've suffered illnesses uh, in the workplace. And I think it's particularly relevant to uh, to observe this day, the yesterday, uh, in light of what's happening in healthcare with healthcare workers, and I guess all frontline workers, for that matter. Uh, but I think healthcare workers are getting hit particularly hard with illness uh, and even some deaths now. I think two, there, I think there have been three healthcare workers who've died of COVID-19. Two of them, um, it's suspected that they were, they contracted it while at work. Both of those people were uh, personal support workers who um, unfortunately are low paid workers and usually uh, classically are underemployed. Uh, their, their names are, so Ari, Arlene Reed was the, was, um, the second personal support worker to die. And the first one, her name was Christine Mad, Madigarian. She was a personal support worker for 31 years. Uh, and, um, I don't know how long it's a the her union says she was 51 Arlene Reed was 51 it doesn't say how long she's been working for but it's a um, it's a really sad thing particularly because there are some the union is now saying that the um, that and I mean this has been an, an ongoing complaint by healthcare workers generally but particularly for healthcare workers working in either long-term care or working in the home care settings that they haven't been, they don't have access to appropriate uh, protective equipment, personal protective equipment, not the right kind of masks. And I'm sure um, in the future we'll find out the degree to which that's been true, whether, whether the right masks and the right protective equipment was provided or not. I'm sure we'll find out more about these things and learn We'll learn a lot more about um, 
how these organizations can better prepare for things like this. Everyone, I'm sure, going forward will have stockpiles of personal protective equipment and be um, have a plan in place, have better plans in place at least to uh, to hit the ground running should should something like this happen ever again. But it is important to note that right now, moving away from personal support workers, one in seven people in the province of Ontario who have been infected with COVID-19 has been a healthcare worker. Healthcare worker accounts for one seventh of all infections. And uh, especially in long-term care, there's some numbers that were released that show that they are getting infected at higher rates even than the, uh, the clients of the long-term care facilities. So it's a really difficult, um, really difficult, particularly for those who are the lowest, some of the lowest paid workers. Uh, you know, for those who don't know, personal support workers are the people who would come to your home and help you with a bath. They would help maybe make a meal for you. They would help um, get you dressed in the morning, um, get your medications, and they do a lot of the heavy lifting for people who need um need help getting out of bed and have some mobility challenges and they don't get paid a lot for their work and they as i mentioned they're underemployed which means usually so they, they typically get paid around 16 or 17 dollars an hour now in ontario if i remember correctly and typically what they work for multiple agencies or even some will work for a home care agency as well as working in long-term care and and that's simply because any particular any one agency this this type of work is quite precarious to begin with it's it's client based so when a client um, there typically aren't enough clients from one agency to fully employ one personal support worker so they'll go and be hired by multiple agencies and work for multiple um, or even multiple sectors and so you can so this obviously is a is one of the challenges I think to um, with COVID nineteen is these these healthcare workers, even if they do work in long term care, may also be working in the community, um, and so it is very important that we try to do a better job as we go forward to employ these people. Um, first of all, pay them more because they, the work they do is incredibly important, but also try to find ways that they can be. Um, more fully employed under one through one employer and rather than being having multiple part-time jobs and typically if they work in in a in the community environment so going from home to home they typically aren't paid for the time <coughs> that they're traveling from one client to the next and so there's it's it's a very odd broken up day that they have to sort of piece together their paychecks going from client to client and they have to um, it's it's a difficult job so I think uh, today is a good day to acknowledge particularly personal support workers but also all healthcare workers and further anyone who's in touch with the public and coming into contact with members of the public all of our frontline workers because they are all risking their health and the health of their families by continuing to serve in the roles that they have. 
So that was the first thing, and I'll mention the other three things that I wanted to talk about. Um, the first is that my mom mentioned to me yesterday that there was some talk, some news articles about a vaccine potentially being available as early as September. And so I found a couple of articles talking about this. There's a researchers in Oxford, we'll get into that, that, that believe that um, they think they have a vaccine that's being tested right now, and, there's, and if everything goes right, we could have a vaccine by September. Apple and Google are talking about um, releasing an API that will help to, that will allow for tracking, um, tracking people's smartphones and contact tracing. So using low energy Bluetooth in our phones, they will allow the data to be uh, sort of contacts between people as they're walking down the street or moving in and out of buildings to figure out who has been who has come into contact with uh, someone who may have contra contracted the COVID-19 COVID and allow for, uh, allow a public health official to um, get access to this data so that contact can be made with relevant parties. It seems like a really, really valuable tool that could be deployed as we start to uh, relax restrictions. Um, it also seems like we could learn a lot from this sort of data, and it made me think as I was, as I was reading about this, it made me think about the cell phone apps that have been used in other countries, like South Korea, I think, make, made use of these, and maybe even in China, that it would also tell you a lot about where transmission might be happening, because by knowing who came into contact with who, and once you know someone who is um, is positive for COVID-19, you can then follow that person moving around and seeing who else among their contacts may have come into contact, uh, who, who else may have tested positive. And so you could try to understand what type of contact, you could learn a lot about what type of contact leads to people actually transmitting the virus between people and it seems that that data should already be there if it's uh, should already be available based on so what some of these other countries have done but if not then i mean there's clearly studies that google and apple hopefully could um, be running or someone could be running with that with the data i mean they do talk about making data de-identified so to get around the privacy concerns and making the data disappear after two weeks but if there is some way of making use of the contact information to also help understand how the virus could spread from someone who has it to someone who doesn't have it it would be incredibly valuable um I'll jump around a bit more. Uh, the other two, the other uh, two things I wanted to talk about is that um, BC schools, the, so schools in Ontario, they're still saying Doug Ford is still saying they're going to still reflect on whether or not th uh, schools may go back in the spring um, before the end of the normal school year, uh, or rather than just saying they'll start in September, but everyone I think is sort of feeling that it's probably gonna be September before we go back to school in Ontario. BC has basically said that that is what they're gonna do as well. They're going to, their schools will not open fully until September. So it makes it even 
stranger that Quebec is going fully ahead with their plan and the uh, their medical officer chief, I, I can't remember what the term is chief medical officer um, has even said that this is a very risky thing and it sounds like he's even admitting that uh, lots of people well many people will get sick and some people will die as a result of this decision but they are going to um, go ahead but they are they will change course if too many people get sick and too many people die. So that's an interesting, they really are valuing, I guess, the kind of the secondary effects of this virus and, and um, you know, finding ways to, that I guess in their minds, they have some way of figuring out when is it too many people that are, uh, that are dying or getting sick for them to make that decision. It'll be interesting to see if they have to do that going forward. Um, yeah, the going, uh, oh, and the last thing that I'll touch on at the very end, I'll go back to vaccines in a second, and then I'll go back to the, uh, I'll just touch on an idea that I keep, that keeps bouncing into my head. As an engineer, this, there seems like there are, there should be an engineering solution, partially engineering solution to keeping people from bringing the virus into their houses on their hands. So hand washing, getting people to wash their hands more effectively seems like something a device, a reminder system could help with. And this is based on work that's been going on at Toronto Rehab where I work for a while now. Um, so it, in the hospital setting, they've developed, Jeff Fernie and his team have developed little badges that everyone wears where as you move in and out of patient rooms, the badge starts to vibrate and beep at you if you walk into a patient room without washing your hands. And the system detects whether you've washed your hand after, you know, after each activation of the, the prompt, uh, it tracks whether or not you actually did wash your hands or not. So you can get a good sense of how often people are washing their hands and you have this prompting feature and what they've sh the studies around this pro this system have shown that the most important part of it is the prompting so giving people prompts at the right time increases hand hygiene compliance so increases the amount people wash their hands when they're supposed to um, more so than if you just took the data if you turn off the prompting and you just took the data over a week and printed a report and showed that report to the healthcare worker that type of intervention does nothing to change the rates of uh, hand washing whereas having a prompt at the time when you when the person should be washing their hands makes all the difference it can double hand hygiene uh, hand washing rates instantly basically so we even talked a little bit about the home care setting, um, and I can't remember whose idea this was, but the idea basically is that you could have a device that as you walk into your house, um, uh, you would have something that senses that a new person has come into the house, or that not a new person, but any person has come into the house, and the device starts to flash or buzz, and to get the device to stop buzzing or flashing, you have to pump the alcohol gel dispenser, and that turns the buzzer off. 
And it just feels like that is a device that I want in our home, having Caden, who is, um, you know, a little bit more vulnerable. But really, for anyone, I I think, you know, I think we, we all sort of have this feeling that kids aren't that... Um, at so much risk right now from COVID. So it's more even uh, my parents thinking about if someone, you know, someone from my mom's apartment building, if a maintenance person needs to come into her apartment, I want someone, something there that would be in the main, in, in the front door of her apartment that as soon as someone comes in the door, it starts flashing and kind of, kind of, jolts the person into washing their hands. I just want to know that that system would be there and you wouldn't have to, someone wouldn't feel the need to remind, you wouldn't have to remind people to do it. Um, kids would would automatically do it rather than having to be asked to do it. And so it's a product that would be relatively straightforward in one, the design of which could be relatively straightforward. I was sort of imagining you you have a simple motion sensor in front of something you 3M double-sided tape to the wall. Um, but, and, and it's a simple motion sensor that starts a LED flashing and a little buzzer buzzing. But the, and, and there's a simple switch or something built into on a spring or something that when you push down the alcohol gel it hits a switch when when you push it to pump it it hits you have to hit a switch and that deactivates the alarm or the prompt the only thing i can't quite figure out is how would you is how you would um figure out if someone's leaving the house versus coming in because you would walk in front the, the simplest embodiment of this you would walk walking out of the house you would set off the prompt as well and maybe there's just a timer that turns the thing off and you ignore the prompt while you're leaving the house. Um, and that wouldn't be the end of the world. It, it could just flash a few, t maybe if it's not an audible signal, if it's a visual thing, it's not the end of the world if it flashes a few times. Uh, it would be nice if it could somehow, if, if we could build some way a slightly smarter device that could detect that you're coming into the house from outside as opposed to going outs outside from inside and i can't yeah every time i think about it it gets to multiple sensors and i mean they, obviously there's ways to do it but taking i just want a simple a s very simple device that can be s that can be self-contained stuck to the wall i want to build this device and put it in our house and just see if it works and maybe there's some potential to for other people who want to buy this thing but it's got to be super simple like a, a little cheap little thing that is basically the size of a small alcohol gel dispenser with a small electronics box on it uh, hopefully without the need to communicate with a secondary sensor somewhere else. Yeah, so if if anyone, if any engineers or pseudo-engineers are listening to this, feel free to, if you have any ideas. I mean, I don't care if you're an engineer or not, but just just if you have any ideas, I'm happy to hear them. And, um, and I might just try to build something because it's, uh, it's an interesting idea.
I think. I think it could be a very useful idea right now. Um, yeah, I think, oh, and going back to the vaccine thing, that's the last thing for today. So I think what I, uh, most people that I've been talk talking with or hearing or reading about, most experts seem to believe that having, getting a vaccine is going to take a year to a year and a half probably before we have something. Um, and so it was quite surprising to hear my mom say that she'd heard on the news that someone was targeting September to have um, to have a vaccine out. They think they're on track. And, uh, and it, it was even more surprising to read the actual article. I think it was in the BBC. There's quite a few. If you look up September vaccine, um, there's a few articles out there. Um, I think they're all talking. The one I'm looking at now is a is a there's a CBC Evening News article, and then there's one by BBC. Um, so coronavirus. So this is the one that really caught my attention. Corona, BBC uh, coronavirus vaccine target of a million doses by September, scientists say. And so scientists at the University of Oxford say they should have at least a million doses of a coronavirus vaccine by September this year. What I, uh, in, in the article, they do say most experts still estimate it will take 12 to 18 months to develop and manufacture a vaccine. Um, but the, the researcher who, um, uh, Sarah Gilbert here, lead researcher developing the vaccine, says she is 80% sure uh, that the vaccine will actually work. Um, and she says, this is a quote, this is my view because I've worked with this technology a lot and I've worked on the MERS vaccine trial, which is another type of coronavirus, and I've seen what that can do. And I think there's a very strong chance of working. Um, so, I mean, the, the main concern really is if, I think, I think even if the vaccine works, it's sort of a probability thing. It's like, even if the vaccine works perfectly, it also has to be safe. And and getting through all the regulatory hurdles and everything, I mean, I think, I think it will, it, I guess it's exciting to hear someone saying that. What I was trying to tell my mom is, and this was before I knew it was on the BBC, what I was trying to tell her is that there might be a lot of people who want to get excited about vaccines. And so depending on what news outlet you're going with, someone's might be jumping the gun a little bit in terms of um, vaccine testing, because obviously there's lots of vaccine testing going on, lots of different, I think there's 80 or something different groups around the world that are developing vaccines. But, um, but to know, but for it to actually work, um, could be a little sensationalized because we want, you know, news outlets want to report good news. They want to be able to say that we found a virus or people are working, they have a good chance of finding a virus, uh, a vaccine, I should say. They, they found a, there's a good chance of getting a vaccine. So, I don't know. I think, I think it's fairly unlikely that we'll have a vaccine by September. 
but I guess we never know. We can keep our fingers crossed. Um, yeah, I think that's all I wanted to talk about tonight. And so uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay, good night. <laughs>